Terrific is the word that I would use. So you're one of those people, well done. We did it because we wanted people, we realise there's a lot of people who don't know the story of the Battle of Gate Park or the Battle of Tanaka, and they don't know why these battles are important for us as a city. So we offered it that year, and then we had a couple of years off. Uh, about three years ago, we started running them again. Uh, last week, we looked at the missionaries. This week, we're looking at the battle. And to be honest, I wasn't sure how many would come tonight. And I'm really glad that so many have come. So thank you all for coming and showing interest in this. This is uh, part of our kōpapa for being on this place, on this site. We are a Christian church sitting on the site where people fought. Uh, there were Anglicans on both sides, as we will hear. It is a tragedy that this battle ever happened, and what happened after this battle is a tragedy. And we need to know that. So part of telling this, I had an email today, um, or yesterday, saying they weren't going to come because the person didn't want to be burdened with the guilt of the past. And I had to say, we're not here to burden people with guilt of the past. I'm pretty sure my great-great-great-grandfather was down there in 1864 with the 65th Regiment. He was here with the 65th Regiment, but they were kind of scattered around the country. But there's a very good chance that he was here. I could feel burdened with the guilt of that. But I'm not. I, I wish uh, the predecessors, uh, my predecessors, had made different decisions, but they didn't. They were products of their time. But I need to know the stories so that I can know the pain of what those events caused, so that I can do something about it, both the injustice of what happened, but also to ensure that we don't repeat those mistakes into the future. So we don't do this to burden people with guilt, but we do do this so that people know the stories and maybe can do something different in the future uh, and create a future that is good for all who live here in Tauranga Moana. So in light of all of that, I want to uh, welcome Buddy and Cliff. Uh, it's good to see Buddy's here. He's just arrived. He's driven down from Manaya, just out of uh, Coromandel. So thank you, Buddy, for doing that. Uh, he's signing books at the moment. And uh, so um, Cliff is a member of this congregation. Uh, his doctorate is in the New Zealand wars. Uh, he's particularly, he and Buddy wrote a book about this battle. Um, which was published in uh, 2014. So that's the book that's on sale. Uh, they've done more work on that book for a reprint. Uh, and they tell the story not, again, to make people feel bad, but just so that they know what happened, know the story. Uh, it's a gift that we have um, Cliff as a member of our parish. Uh, and I really enjoy these talks, partly because in about two weeks I have to start putting these talks to various groups when they come through here and expect me to know as much as those two. So I will be listening carefully once again. Uh, and uh, was a, one of the joys of 2014 was getting to work with um, Buddy. Buddy Lepari is another one of our local, eminent local historians. Has uh, worked for the Waitangi Commission uh, and uh, has written a number of books. And uh, he... Um, was the main force behind the commemoration events in 2014. So he organised uh, a trust board to work with them and they raised a lot of the money, but it was Buddy that did the legwork really. So those events are due to his vision and his passion and his energy 
and his ability to get a whole lot of different people together working on an event. And it was a whole lot of different people, both iwi representatives, but representatives of the business community as well. And now he's working on some new projects. And hopefully we'll see the fruition of that in the future as well. So I welcome to you both. Uh, I look forward to what you have to say. Uh, I think we're going to have a short break in about halfway, and there will be um, some fruit and cold water available through in the lounge. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to take questions at the end. I think we'll just finish. But if you want to have a conversation, I'll put it all with either Cliff or Buddy after we're finished. You'd be most welcome to do that. So Cliff and Buddy, please put your hands together as they come up. Far end of the world, 
especially in the ends of the earth, and kissed mum goodbye <coughs> on the docks of Liverpool or London, and knowing that you could never go home, these people arrived in New Zealand and um, they, all of their eggs were in that basket. Now, in 1860, um, just a, a little bit of an overview of the Maori situation, some Maori were su almost supremely um, unaware that there were Europeans in New Zealand, uh, but a lot of Maori were um, interacting with them in various ways around, around the, the towns and settlements, in trade, things like fishing, um, and various other things, the mission stations. The Maori population had been about 100,000 pre-contact. But through the musket wars, and I mentioned last week that was probably 20 to 25,000 deaths, and then disease and illness introduced uh, from overseas, the population was down to around about 60,000. Um, some people travelling through the country would come across a village where virtually everyone was dying of influenza and places like that. That was not uncommon in, uh, in some of the Many Māori had adopted Christianity, and the impact of Christianity and other aspects of the Pākehā culture was starting to change Māori culture and Māori lifestyles. Um, some tribes had become quite wealthy uh, through commerce, um, especially in the Waikato, uh, large areas of horticulture, um, um, four or five hundred acres of wheat. It's said that the wheat fed Auckland. Some of it went as far as Sydney, and apparently some of it went to the Californian gold fields. So um, some of them were doing very well. And at that point, the land was mainly in Maori ownership. As far as the Pākehā size it goes, the two main towns, and I'll just talk about the North Island, because the South Island is really a different case. But in the North Island, we have Auckland and Wellington. We have uh, Auckland is still the capital until 1865. Um, it, it changed to Wellington to stave off the efforts from the South Islanders at secession point away because Auckland was just too far north. Um, so they moved it more to the middle of the country in 1865. Um, but we have provincial government. So we, we it's a really quite a confused setup. So the provinces have governments. You can see that Auckland was the biggest and you can see why we celebrate Auckland anniversary day still, because we were part of the Auckland <coughs> province. The population was virtually the same as the Maori population, but it was growing very quickly. The, um, in 1863, uh, 43,000 Pākehā, or Europeans, came into New Zealand. Those are sort of immigration figures on today's standard. By the 1870s, there were a couple of hundred thousand, and by the first world war, there were 1.1 million. So the European population was growing very, very fast. Uh, and of course, a lot of them were looking to acquire land. The response to um, the, the pressure from this massive influx of Europeans <coughs> was there were several uh, movements, but um, the main one is the Kingi or what we now know as the King Movement. And the current Maori King, King Tuhatia, is I think the eighth descendant in a straight line from the original Maori King. Now, Maori society didn't have a hierarchical structure with a king at the top. There was a very flat uh, structure. There were over 500 chiefs who signed the Treaty of Waikami. So each chief was more or less autonomous. So the concept of the king was a foreign one. They looked at um, the Europeans who did things in the name of Queen Victoria 
and figured that it would be a way of unifying Māori. Not all Māori are members of the, of the Kenitanga. It's really a middle of the North Island. It's a Tainui uh, movement, including parts of Taranaki and across here in but in 1858, the King Movement was established. The first Māori King was coronated, or crowned, and it was designed to put the land of the tribes that uh, came under his, or put their mana under him, uh, to try and stop the encroachment of, of Europeans and to try and preserve the land, because they understood that as they lost their land, they lost their culture and other things as well. Now, as far as the government is concerned and, and the settlers, this was unacceptable. We were a colony, we had a queen, we had a governor, we had a political structure. What's this stuff all about? And as I said last week, for some of the missionaries, this was a step too far. They were loyal Victorian English people and they were loyal to the queen. And um, this, was, this was a challenge. How can you have a king inside a colony that is ruled by the Queen. And Pākehā settlers and some of the little outlying settlements, say like Tauranga, but um, some of the ones with the Waikato, were quite unsettled by this and they felt surrounded and they felt um, very uncomfortable. The best way that I can describe the Kīkāna to you in a very simple way is the way that Wurrimu Kamehāna described it. And he drew a circle on the ground and he placed one stick inside the circle and said, that is Māori, and um, that is a king for the Māori. Uh, the circle was New Zealand. And then he put another stick in the ground and then said, that is the governor, that is the governor for the Pākehā. And then he put a stick across the top of the two, and he said, that's Queen Victoria, she rules over all of us. And so it wasn't a separatist movement, it was more an expression of autonomy or of Māori uh, self-determination. And you see that still in things like the Māori Party and various other things. It's not a breakaway. It's not saying we don't want to be part of New Zealand. It's saying we want to do our own thing within the New Zealand context. So this was uh, Ruru Tamihana. We talked about him last week, actually. But a governor for the Pākehā came for the Māori all under the rules of Queen Victoria. <coughs> Now, the first test uh, of this was in the Waikato, and you heard about the, in, uh, sorry, Taranaki, the Waikato Purchase. Um, and this was a, the, the settlement in Taranaki uh, was under a lot of pressure. The settlers had been un, unable to acquire the land that they thought they had bought when they were back in the United Kingdom. And um, this government all around was under a lot of pressure to try and get some more land for them to expand into. And he went ahead and purchased the Waitara, the mouth of the Waitara River. Um, and he knew it was a, a tricky, um, a bit of a dodgy deal, to be honest. Uh, but they, he was desperate and he went ahead with it. And it led to quite a nasty little war for about a 10 month period. Troops came across from Australia and from further afield. Uh, and eventually, warriors went down from the Waikato down into Taranaki. And so the war spread. Uh, into the Waikato. And um, even some uh, fighters from here went all the way to Taranaki to fight in, the, in those battles. And what it led to uh, was a realisation with the government that um, if it was going to have to
try and neutralize the Kingtana, uh, it was going to have to invade the Waikato. And there were plans to actually invade in 1861, which would have been a disaster for the government because they simply didn't have enough troops and resources. But the government was removed, Governor Brown, he was replaced by Governor Gray again. Um, and Gray developed a, what, what historians call a peace policy and a war policy over the next two year period. His peace policy was to try and put institutions out into uh, Maori communities and to enmesh them in the bureaucracy of this, the new administration, the, government, the, the New Zealand government. Things like schools, um, land um, agents, magistrates, doctors, um, and various other people like that. Um, and and the, the, the country was actually broken up into 20 sections, and these were almost like local bodies, if you like. And Māori had a role, in, a small role, in some of those local bodies. And at the same time, his war policy was to drastically build up quite a significant military force. Eventually, 18,000 men are under arms in New Zealand. There's about 10,000 imperial troops. At one point, it was the largest military operation um, in the British Empire, uh, and a lot of ships came here as well. <coughs> so over this period of time, he builds up quite a significant force. Now, um, the, public, or the European population in Auckland uh, were quite fearful. There, was, there, was always, there were reports in the newspapers that Auckland might be under threat of attack. And um, a, a kind of warfare started to develop. There were some newspapers that whipped people into a frenzy, and every now and again there would be a panic. People would sell their possessions and get on a ship and sail back to Sydney or somewhere like that. And there was one uh, newspaper that called itself the War of All Costs Organ. And there was a developing feeling that Maori had to pay. Maori had to be put, brought into line, they had to toe the line, the government had to reserve its authority and they will have to forfeit land as a result. So the South Auckland area, between Auckland and the start of the Waikato, became a bit of an armed frontier, and I'll show some pictures of that in a minute. And the Maori communities could see what was going on as well, and they were quite fearful, because they could see that you know, the, the tension was escalating, war was coming. They could see the Great South Road being built from Auckland down to Pocono. And there was, no, there was no doubt what that road was going to be about. And then, in late 1863, the, the new government passed legislation, the New Zealand Settlements Act. And this is an old remedy that has been used for centuries in, in, in the United Kingdom. But if you are in rebellion against the king, uh, you lose your land. And so this um, New Zealand Settlements Act was a particularly heavy-handed piece of legislation that came in. And it was, so any tribes that were deemed to be in rebellion against the government will have their lands taken. And this is a piece of legislation that was used for most of the confiscation of land after the 1864 wars in Waikato and Now, the key personalities, this is um, King Kapio. He's the son of the first king. The first king was a very old, experienced um, chief to Perifera, and his young son took over the next set in the lineage, and he was looking for an accommodation with the government. He didn't particularly want to fight, um, and um, but, so that's him. 
Wurrungakungahana um, was also what you might call a moderate, looking for an accommodation with the government, uh, a peaceful man. And Rewu Nandi Koto, from Nandi Nandi Koto, more up in the Te Aumutu and south area, uh, was much more strident in his opposition against uh, the government and protest. And he was adamant that the government was not going to come into the Waikato. On the uh, other side, uh, this is Premier Whitaker. The Premier, we now wrote, we call him a Prime Minister. Uh, now this guy was the leading lawyer in Auckland. He was a, uh, an advocate of um, opening up the Waikato for settlement. Uh, he was a land developer. And he was the one who passed that legislation in um, October 1863. He came in in October 1863 in December 1863 about the confiscation of the land. He was a hard-nosed person, and I, I feel that you know, he actually carries quite a lot of the blame for the problems that we are still carrying today. But he, he was definitely um, a about confiscating the land. The junior partner of his law firm, Thomas Russell, became the Minister of Defence. Now, in these days, we didn't have political parties like we do now, like Labour and National. We had as I said, the provincial government, and we also had um, just forceful personalities that would build an administration around themselves. It might last 12 months, it might last three months, and then it would all fly apart, and then another one would come in. And so they took over, his administration took over um, in October 1863. Um, Governor George Bray uh, came back in 1861, he had been the government uh, during the Northern War in 1845, and now the country is in another race relations crisis, and he is brought back again to try and solve that issue a second time. Uh, twice governor, once premier in New Zealand. Uh, but there's actually a, a, a political battle going on between these two. When the government first came here in the 1840s, he ruled with a just with an executive council of five people. Um, so he can rule almost autocratically. Now we have a representative government, so we have ministers and we have a premier. So the government can't rule as um, strongly as he had previously. And these two guys are actually in a battle over who is actually running the place and who has the power. And thirdly, uh, Lieutenant. <coughs> General Duncan Cameron, Cameron Road. Uh, he, he was a, a, a well-qualified uh, veteran of the Crimean War, which was uh, 10 years earlier than this. Um, he commanded the Highland Brigade in the uh, Crimean War, a professional soldier, very, very senior, uh, and quite a, quite a cautious person, I think, the way he conducted things. He is the one who was in command here just a couple of photos to show you what South Auckland started to look like. So um, you can see a church there, St Bride's, and it's been fortified. So the tension started to develop to the extent that the settlers were building, the settlers on the farmland in South Auckland were building stockades around the churches, and you can see the loopholes there where you would fire your musket through, standing and aiming through the, the hole. Um, and there was a navy camp at Drury. There were all sorts of military establishments developed through South Auckland. 
And if the, um, and often the women were sent back to Auckland or somewhere safer, and the men would keep the farms going. And if there was an emergency, uh, they would rush to one of these strong points where they would uh, be able to defend themselves. The most famous example of this is the Pukekohe East Church, Presbyterian Church, uh, in um, just near Pukekohe, which was attacked and it was under siege for a period of time. Uh, and the construction of the great military road that went from Auckland all the way down to Pocono um, was to be out. At the end of that, the purpose of that great road was this large fort. This was 100 metres or 100 yards square. It was large enough to have a hospital and a lot of other uh, quite uh, specialist facilities in it. And this was to be the launch pad for the invasion. So all of this is developing over that two-year period. This is uh, the first purpose-built warship that the New Zealand government ever purchased, and that was built in Australia and um, sailed across the Tasman. And it was specifically designed to operate on the Waikato River. It's got a very shallow draft, it's got a paddle wheel at the back, it's armoured, it has two cupolas on there with 12-pound um, armstrong guns. That line around the side of it is a steam pipe that can be activated to stop people boarding. Um, and with this and a couple of other, three other um, warships that were specifically designed to operate on the Waikato, uh, the government was able to penetrate deep, deep into the Waikato. Uh, they could tow barges, they could put troops in behind Maori positions, and these were really in some ways the key to the whole operation. So Māori were, of course, watching what was going on. And there were different factions within the Māori uh, groups, to, and they were trying to work out what the response would be. They didn't want war, they didn't particularly want this invasion. And the Mangata Ferry Stream was considered the border. So the, the king said, if the troops cross that stream, it's going to be war. And well before the, um, the start of the war, the uh, the Māori warriors started to build fortifications at Mirimiri and Rangariri on the river that were supposed to stop this invasion. Oh, sorry, what was that? And as just before the war we, uh, began, all Pākehā within Waikato, the missionaries, the farmers, everyone was actually expelled, so there were actually no Pākehā. Even children of mixed race, um, most were expelled, um, so that there were no um, Europeans in now this is far too complicated for you to see, but um, if I can just show you on this one. I just wanted to um, just give you a general impression. So here's Auckland, here's the Great South Road that took about 18 months to build, all the way down to, um, uh, where is it, uh, Queen's Redoubt there. And so this was a land supply route, and at the same time there was a, a, a sea supply route that was developed that went through this way as well. Uh, and you can see there were lots of little engagements after the war started in and around that area. But I just wanted to mention this one to you. Does anyone know where, what that location is? It's I thought you might just be interested in, in this. And this is just typical of what was happening at the time. So, on that uh, Iwamato Peninsula there, there had been a Wesleyan mission station. 
And um, there was a there was a farming community, a Maori farming community, that had become a Christian community, and they were selling their food to the settlers in, in Northern Town itself. Now, just before uh, General Cameron was ready to launch the invasion into Waikato, when he had enough troops and um, the ships were operational, the, the um, Maori up in this area, in the South Auckland area, were uh, asked to sign an oath of allegiance to Queen Victoria. Now, from a military perspective, that makes some sense because you don't want people who you think are your enemy or who could infiltrate your supply lines and things like that in behind you. But from a human rights point of view, and in terms of the treaty, this was a, a, a pretty tough thing to do. The soldiers would descend on these villages, they would demand that the people um, sign an oath of allegiance to the Queen, and if they didn't, they would have to go and come south into the Waikato. And so that's what happened at Eagle Mato. The, um, the, the government identified it as a village that was sympathetic towards the Waikato. Uh, they were asked to sign, people said no, and they were driven off and they moved south. And, that's, um, and then after the war, that land was confiscated, as part of the general confiscations, and you know the story that's happened since then. So that's just one example of what's happened. So there's the Great Military Road, there's Auckland, uh, the road goes down to Pocono, there's Queen's Redoubt, and the Maori response is Mary Mary and Rangaroo. And then the, at, at Narawahia, where the Waipa River and the um, Waikato River join, um, just near the road bridge that goes over, you probably know it, is where the Maori king had set up a kind of a, a headquarters, a kind of a court. And um, that area was um, fortified. So the invasion took place uh, in July. Uh, Mary Mary fell in November, uh, and then Rangaruri fell a couple of weeks later. And by the 8th of December, the troops were at so these great, um, the Maori uh, were defeated and they fell back past Narawahi. So there's Narawahi again. I know it's hard to read, but uh, I'm going very quickly through this. Now the decision the government had to make was what are we going to do now? Are we going to continue the invasion or are we going to just stop at this point? Any military threat to Auckland has now been um, nullified. The decision was made to carry on and um, Maori had built three large positions around that Patagonia, around the blue area there. The government bypassed those um, and there were the battles at Oraco and Arangiofia. The last battle at Oraco was in um, uh, early April and sadly 160 Maori were killed and the um, the remaining people were driven out of that area. If I just go back, can you see this river here? This is um, known as the Pumiu River, this one here. And that was a boundary which, uh, for the Maniapoto country. And the Maori king and his supporters are driven south into Maniapoto country, which then becomes known as the King Country. And they were there until the early 19, uh, sorry, 1880s. Peace was eventually made in 1882. Now, you notice the date here. This is the same month as the Battle of Kaipara. So while the British troops are coming up the Waikara and then measure out the Waikato, and while operations are happening in Waikato, things have already started to happen here. 
Now, in Tauranga, um, the Tauranga was part of the logistics system, or the supply system for the war in the Waikato. It's got a beautiful safe harbour, and so gun runners were running um, guns into Tauranga and selling them to the local Māori, gunpowder uh, and other war supplies. Um, if you, were a, a, if you were a trader from Australia, from the Australian colonies or from America or something like that, and you wanted to make a quick buck, you could sail into Raymond Harbour or Tauranga Harbour or some of these other ones, and you could sell a, ship, a shipload of um, weapons, uh, and they would eventually find their way across into the Waikato. It was also a place where the Waikato tribes, uh, sorry, where the East Coast tribes, or the Tairawhiti tribes, would come across and then through into the Waikato. You can see the Rotorua Lakes there. That's the Arawa tribe. And the Arawa were allied to the Crown, and they wouldn't allow anyone to pass <coughs> through their country or their body. And so the route to get to, to, uh, to Waikato was to come to Tauranga and then go over the Kaimais, much like we do today, and then you would be into the war zone. Now, for all of these reasons, the uh, General Cameron requested uh, a blockade of Tauranga in January 1864. Uh, Tauranga, this is a, a painting by Roby in 1865, so it's after the war, so it just gives an impression of what, um, what people were, how people were living at the time. Now, in some of the, the battle, the wars that we've had around New Zealand at this time, it, it has been a war between the settlers and the local Māori. Like in New Plymouth, it was a, it was a battle over the land, uh, and the settlers formed militias and fought alongside the British troops against the Māori. In Wellington, it was about the land in the Hutt Valley. Here, the war did not grow out of the local situation. The local Pākehā and Māori were getting on okay. There were points of friction, but they were getting on okay. And the war didn't grow out of their relationship. There was a small Pākehā population, mainly around the mission station, but there were some traders and farmers as well. Uh, and there was a small Roman Catholic mission at and the old venerable Archdeacon Brown, most of you will know the story of him, he was the lead missionary. He always, these photos of the missionaries always, they looked like such old gentlemen because <laughs> photography was first really available in the 1860s. But he, as I mentioned last week, came here as about a 29 year old. And so him and his wife had spent most of their adult life doing this sort of work. So on the 21st of January, 1864, three warships sailed into the harbour and they landed just opposite where the, um, the, the Elms is and they quickly uh, unloaded and secured the buildings of the Elms. Now there had been threats that if the soldiers ever came to Tauranga, those buildings would be burned. And so the first um, aim was to secure those buildings. And then um, they established a military camp. And they changed it. It was the Tipapa Mission Station, so it becomes Camp Tipapa. And um, they established a military uh, base there, in and around the mission station and along the strand. And the aim is to blockade the harbour. And to cut off the, water, the food. Now, um, intelligence reports have been coming back to the government that some of the Kingite or Kingitanga 
Uh, recruiters had been in Tauranga, had been encouraging more men to go and fight in the Waikato, because things were going badly in the Waikato. And there was a large quantity of food that was being grown in the Tipuna area that was going to be taken over in about February uh, when it became ripe, and it was going to supply the, the military as well. So the first, uh, the, 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 the Maori army. So the first thing was um, the soldiers were told was to to destroy the crops, or take the crops in and, and bring the animals in as well. But that instruction was soon changed, and they were told just to take a passive posture. I've covered that information there. So this, once again, very difficult to see, uh, but I just thought I'd throw it in there. So that's um, in 1864. You can see a warship out in the harbour, Maori in the foreground, and up on the left-hand side there, you can see some of the mission buildings and the old bell tents of the soldiers. Now, of course, this is the worst thing that could happen for the local population. The soldiers have arrived, unexplained, suddenly, what does it all mean? And they spoke to Premier uh, Carey, who was the, um, the man in charge of this move, and he couldn't really tell them quite what it meant. And there was uh, a bit of a disconnect between what Governor Gray's policy was and what um, Premier Whitaker's policy was. And this was really a move by Premier Whitaker. Uh, and they put pressure on Gray to see to it. There was a civil commissioner here called Baker, and he sent out a letter to the local tribes, or you know, printed circular telling them that tribes that were loyal to the Crown had no reason to worry, uh, only if they were in the government. Now, one of the other things that happened is that the warriors who were over in the Waikato um, were called back. At that time, there were quite a number of um, men at Manukaupere who were preparing to resist um, the there, and they were called back. And uh, the decision was made, uh, this is obviously going to be a military threat, what are we going to do? And they started to uh, fortify some of the old path sites up in the lower Kaimai area that had been built in previous times. Now, at the same time, there was an, uh, an East Coast War Party that was coming across to join into the war in the Waikato as well. And they were trying to get through the Tiara area, and they were driven back. There was a three-day running battle in and around the lakes, the, um, the Rotorua lakes, and they were driven back out onto the coast. And then at um, Makatu, uh, there was a, um, a joint British and Tiarawa force put there to stop anyone coming further. So I know these uh, are a little bit small. So there is Makatu. The East Coast tribes had tried to come through here and they were trying to take a shortcut through into the Waikato. They had been driven back onto the coast and um, it appears that they may have been going to come and reinforce uh, the, the, the Maori garrison at <coughs> But the British and Tiarawa blocked them here, and there's soon going to be a big battle in that area. <coughs> now, Rauri Puhiraki uh, is a very old chief who is the war leader, uh, and he, he develops this strategy, no doubt with others as well, of trying to draw Colonel Greer. Now, it's now Colonel Greer, not and Colonel Greer is sitting down with his troops in, um, in Te Papa, 
And Rowery builds a various power, or develops various power out in the hinterland. And his strategy is to draw the British out, to attack him in somewhere which, where they will be at a disadvantage. So they traveled quite a few miles through the countryside, um, and they would be vulnerable to attack or to ambush. And if they uh, take casualties when they are attacking the power, then they will make trouble coming back. So that's his strategy. But remember I said that Greer was under orders not to be aggressive. And besides, Greer only has 600 men at this stage. He doesn't have enough men to protect his uh, encampment at Tebaba and to go and launch an attack on the path. Now, Rowery starts a bit of a campaign to get him to come out. You know, are you a man or are you a mouse? And he writes letters. He threatens to come and attack Tebaba. He says, I'll come and have breakfast in Tebaba. He, um, and um, he sets a date for a battle, the 1st of April, and, and invites Greer to come and fight him. But of course, Greer just stays where he is. Um, you can imagine Rowery's situation. He's got several hundred young men who want, want to get involved in this scrap. Uh, and they're sitting up there, and nothing has happened. So he eventually moved over to the Kotobiti <coughs> Park, which, is a, uh, which was actually his own path, just near the Bonneville River Bridge. And this is where you uh, hear the story about offering to build a road. I don't think there was ever any intention to build a road, but once again he's saying, come on, I'll even build a road so you won't get tired to come out and attack us. Um, uh, but of course Greer is under the structure and he still only has 600 men. But um, Rowery is trying to get him to attack, he's trying to get him to come. Uh, a military commander is always wanting to dictate the battle and get to fight on the, on the ground of his choice, which in this case was out at, uh, at that time. And eventually though, uh, he has to push his strategy a little bit further, and on the 16th of April, um, several hundred Maori move on to this position here. And they, they, they start, they come in in the late afternoon, and they are working during the night, digging this position so that they at least have some protection the next morning uh, once the troops see that they are here. And in the morning, um, Greer and his officers, uh, they, they talk about looking up here, looking through their telescopes, and seeing hundreds of Māori, one of them estimated a thousand Māori on this position digging a digging path. And they interpreted it to mean that they were preparing to attack. And so they sent, Rhea um, sent a letter or sent a message to um, the General Cameron in Auckland uh, asking for reinforcements. But of course they weren't preparing to attack. It's another extension of that policy of trying to draw the British to attack them. And they had chosen a very strong piece of land here to, to, um, to defend. It's not really defense, it's sort of, it's defensive, it's an aggressive form of defense because you're trying to draw, draw them into attack. Uh, and an example of this, um, in, during the Vietnam War, they, the Americans used to talk about meat grinder battles, where they would try and encourage the Viet Cong to come in and attack them, um, and, and, and they would inflict tremendous casualties on them. The, the famous fact that the Indian food of the French in, in 1954 was the same thing, but it turned wrong for the French. It was a meat grinder battle. So what Rowery is really trying to do here is to draw the, um, the British into a battle where he will destroy them. 
But in the final week before the, uh, before the 29th of April, um, things changed. Instead of just sending reinforcements, General Cameron himself arrived. And he brought enough men that there was now a force of about 2,000, including the sailors. So a significant number of people. And at the same time, that um, East Coast War Party that was trying to come through <coughs> the number two area was held up and it was defeated uh, in a joint British Yarrawa battle, uh, and they were forced all along the Matata beach, uh, for, and it was a rain battle for several days. And um, this is a quote from um, Professor James Belch. Had Rawari caused a tiger by the tail, had he actually taken on more than he could now cope with? He had built a path, he had um, created a situation where he thought he was going to be up against 600 of Rhea's troops, but now he is faced with a force of 2,000, and reinforcements that were probably on their way have now been repelled. So it didn't look too good. This is just a painting from the time of the battle at Makatu. Um, you can see the um, British have built a power on the old pass site here as well. And these two um, warships played quite a big part in the the Battle of Kaukaurau, or the Long Rib, which is that long beach um, north of, um, south of Makatu. And they were actually able to steam parallel to the coast because they, they were steam ships as well as having sails. And they bombarded the East Coast tribes and helped drive them out of the area. This battle finished only the day before the assault on now, once again, a, a tricky picture. I've tried to make it as big as I can for you, but this is um, what Gate Park looked like. This um, is in three sections. So if we look down on the top, you can see a very complicated uh, network there. There was a ditch that ran across, right across here, which was a ditch that was there to stop livestock going through. And there was a gate, uh, there was a culvert and a gate and that's how it got the name of the Gate Par, because the British are looking up here, and it's a par where the gate was. And um, so that's what it looks from the, like from the top. This next one here is what the British would have seen. That's the profile on the horizon just there. And then this one is uh, a cross-section of the defenders sitting inside the par and taking up their position on the firing trenches just out here. Now there's been a lot of speculation about what this is all about out here. And in her um, um, stories about it, uh, Henny Kakira Karamu, who was the only woman in the battle, said that her group of about 30 arrived the night before and were told because they weren't locals, they had to actually build their own little party out here at the side and, um, and fight there. And that's the story that she tells. Um, yeah, I don't think that's re really um, realistic. I think what actually happens is that if you look at this, you can see the land curves down here and then it comes out here again. And this big shoulder of land here would have been a problem for Ravari when he was planning his defense. He would have seen that it was a piece of, and you can see, I hope, that it just drops away very, very quickly. British troops might have been able to get around the back. So that's around the back of the bowling club. Or they might have been able to just get up on here and launch an attack onto there. So I think he built a fortification 
out there to try and stop that. The modern commander might put some machine guns out there to try and stop that sort of situation. Uh, but there are various uh, questions about why that took place. Now, you might think that the gate car is a strange looking thing. It's just at ground level and it's a bunch of trenches. Now this is a, from the Tantini Museum in Hawara, uh, and this is a 16th century, um, it's Turatura Mokai Park from the 16th century, and this is how Māori had fought for centuries. You can see uh, a very heavily terraced hill with stockades and uh, what they call fighting platforms, and you can see the men standing on the fighting platforms with stones, and they have sharpened bits of wood and so on. And um, this is how you defended yourself pre-musket, pre-gunpowder, because um, Māori had no projectile weapons. They didn't have bows and arrows or th um, throwing spears or anything like that. And so you could actually stand up there on, on, and being elevated was, was an advantage. But as soon as your enemy has a musket, he can stand back 50 metres and he can just kill you. So all of a sudden, elevation and being exposed like that is dangerous. And during the musket war period of the 1830s, Māori Park changed dramatically. So here we can see a park. This is the path of highway in 1864. And here is a park, sorry, 18, um, in the 1840s, 1845. So this is what Māori Park had changed to before by the time the British arrived. And these parts are designed during the musket wars. So they, they have a double palisade, they have a great big flax mat all the way along the front that will absorb cannonballs and musket balls. And the warriors are not standing up high, but they're standing in trenches and they're poking their muskets through holes in the bottom of the stockade at ground level. So the whole technology has changed. This is what they look like inside. If you look at the top one there, you can see that they are very safe and secure inside um, the palisade like that. And so the trench, the development of trench fighting, uh, was, I'm not saying this is a, a worldwide, so I don't think Māori invented trench war, there are other cultures there too, but Māori developed the idea of trenches for their own purposes during the musket wars. And that's why the, 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 the trench system here looked like it. Here are the British soldiers, just before the battle. You can see General Cameron leaning against the, um, the wheel of a gun. The soldier sitting there with that circular thing, is, uh, that's a co-born member. So these are members of the 68th Regiment the day before the battle. And um, one of the weapons that they had was a new musket that had been brought into service during the 1850s. It was the first generation of rifle musket. So instead of now firing a, um, a ball, this thing fired uh, a cone-shaped projectile that spun through the air because of the rifling, and it was accurate to about 300 yards. It was about as accurate as a lot of modern weapons today, and it had a range of about 1,000 yards. So it was much superior to what the Maori were using, which was their weapon of choice was a double-barrel shotgun, a two-part. But because um, most of the fighting, and certainly most of the fighting here at Gate Power was done at close quarters, that didn't matter too much. You could load the two power up with more or less anything, and you could still fire it and cause some damage. 
The other thing that the British had was this, uh, they had Armstrong guns. These are the latest generation artillery pieces. Breech loading, rifled, so a big improvement on the earlier smoothbore cannon. But you can see this one is on a naval carriage, so it's come off HMS-esque. And because it's so heavy, they weren't able to drag it up onto the little hill just this side of the hospital, Kiraya. They had to lead it down on the track. And the problem with that is that it's now lower than the par. So although it looks like it's going to smash the par to bits, and after the fact, the rounds hit the front of the par and skip over the back, and they landed in and around Reserve area. And bits and pieces have been found over the years. So that gun didn't do as much damage as that. The, the mortars that fire up in the air and come down and the howitzers were more effective. Now, um, once again, just, um, it might be a little bit hard. So the night before the battle, uh, inside the path, there's only 200 warriors in this part and two, uh, 30 in this little part here. These are the Royal Artillery, the Naval Brigade, um, and around the back, we have the 68th Regiment, Colonel Greer's Regiment. What happened was, during the night, um, General Cameron made a faint attack on this side. Uh, the Maori sentries came in, had a look at what was happening here, and some guides guided a whole British uh, battalion, about 700 men, through the swamps, across where Yatton Park is, and they took up their positions at the back of the place during the night. And the Maori actually didn't even know that it was really well done that part. Did it? Did it? Sorry? Uh, anything about you said the Maori? Oh, and the Maori didn't know they were there. The soldiers, the soldiers could hear the chiefs making rallying speeches um, during the night, uh, and, and the soldiers were lying there in the, in the grass, So everything at this point looked like it was going to be a pretty cut and dry battle the next day. The next morning, the heavy artillery opened up. The Maori were actually saying their prayers. Uh, some of them were Anglican, some of them were Catholic, uh, and some of them were still um, subscribing to their traditional religion. Uh, they had some uh, traditional priests as well as Anglican priests in the bar, in the bar and they were saying their morning prayers when the uh, guns opened up. And the, uh, the assault lasted for about seven hours. And it was quite a, quite a heavy bombardment that took place. And the warriors are inside the trench systems here and, and underground, uh, just trying to ride that bombardment out. Because you know that once the bombardment lifts, then the infantry assault will come in and it will be hand to hand battle. So about four o'clock, General Cameron decided that he'd made enough damage, done enough damage to the park, and that um, he launched the assault. The men had already been given their last meal. Um, <clears throat> they had probably dictated their letters um, to um, their families, especially the ones in the front row. The front row was known as the Forlorn Hope. And if you were going to get the Forlorn Hope, that's pretty well what it was, because you were going to take that first volley when you're sold. Um, and you'd probably give your watch or something to someone else um, before knowing you know, your chances of survival, or perhaps even worse still, of being badly wounded, uh, were clearly high. Um, 
they also would have had a good belt of rum. The, um, the, the word Dutch courage comes from the 16th century when the British troops used to fight in, in the Netherlands or Holland uh, and drink gin. Now they are drinking rum and it just, a good belt of Dutch courage is what you need sometimes to go into the battle like this. Murray, of course, stirring speeches, talking about the feelings of the guns have lifted, they know that the assault is about. And the assault went in, perhaps I'll just go back there. So the assault went in just after four o'clock. It was dark, it had been raining all day. The place around here where we are, the trenches, would have been a complete quagmire. Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the guns had been making a mess of it. It would have looked a bit like a World War I um, battlefield with the mud and everything like that. It initially appeared that the troops had gotten through and into the park, and a message even was sent back to General Cameron, congratulations sir, you have taken the park. And the way that, um, and then about, just a few minutes later, they were repelled, and they were driven out of the park, and they were driven back down the hill again, and it was considered very, it was a very embarrassing defeat for them. In fact, the 43rd Regiment became known as the Scarlet Runners, <laughs> they blamed the Navy, the Navy blamed them, but it was it was pretty embarrassing. It looked like it was, as I said, it looked, looked like it was in the bag that they were actually driven out of the park. What possibly happened was that you've got a pile or an area about half the size of the rugby field, you've got 200 warriors, 230 warriors in it, you've got another 600 soldiers coming in and um, <coughs> Filling it all up, it's, it's muddy, it's wet underfoot, there are treasures, um, and the, the Maori warriors were getting up out of those and firing, and there was complete pandemonium. That it may be that about 60 warriors were driven out the back, but the 68th Regiment had closed up and fired at them, and they were pushed back in, um, and someone apparently cried out, Look out, they're coming in there, thousands! And it was a panic. Now, British troops don't usually panic. They've known to have a very high breaking point, you know, the thin red line. But they panicked, and they were driven out of the car. And there were stories of men actually standing there saying, no, 43rd, don't run, don't run. But they, they did. They just thought, if you've ever been swept up in a rugby crowd, something like that, a big mob, and they literally were swept down the hill. Uh, and and Murray um, had one day. Cameron was, was devastated. He thought this was in the bag, and he was absolutely devastated. The next morning when they came up, um, they were worried about what had happened to the, the British were worried about what had happened to the men who had been killed or who had, were, were wounded and lying in the ground park. Because in previous battles in the Taranaki, some of those people had been mutilated and people had been tortured, and they were concerned about that. And when they came up, they were very gratified to find that not only the men were, um, had not been mutilated, but it was evidence that they had apparently been cared for, and some had been given water. If you have a look at that um, top picture there, um, you can see a, a, a bit of a where a tunnel might become, where a tunnel comes through. Um, and so this is where the, the, the Maori warriors were being able to shelter underground here. But actually when you look at this, the tops of here are still intact. So 
it makes you realise that the artillery bombardment wasn't as effective as we might have thought. The, uh, we're not exactly sure on the number of Maori who were killed, but somewhere in those was that vicinity. And you'll hear that the British had 111 casualties. Casualties include wounded and killed. So 31 British soldiers were killed and 88 wounded. The surgeons set up shop down the hill, amputations, uh, all of the primitive ways of trying to deal with people took place. They treated the Maori who were injured as well as the, um, the soldiers. And some um, Maori even paid inside of Auckland for Um Now, there is a theory that it was a trap that, that Rauri Kuharaki's tactic was to bring the British in on top of them and then to fire up and actually um, kill the soldiers when they were standing above them. That's an extremely uh, risky tactic, and I think that's a misunderstanding of what actually happened. And when you look at the size of the par and the size of the, uh, the, the cabins inside it where the men would have been sitting, you wouldn't get 200 men in there firing those sort of muskets, those black powder muskets. When they go off, they create a tremendous noise and they fill the place up with smoke. And I think it would have been a nightmare. So I don't believe it was a trap. Um, I think it was just um, warriors coming up out of the trenches and out of some of the underground cover at about the time that the British troops came. Now, one of the interesting things about this battle was um, the rules of conduct. Um, and these are those rules here. And um, these indicate that the, the, the Maori who had um, become Christian here um, were actually starting to think, how are we going to fight this battle in that sort of a way? How are we going to fight this in an ethical sort of way? And these are just quite different rules to the way that Maori had traditionally fought their wars. Um, the other two um, are here. And um, interestingly enough, those rules were pretty much adhered to during the battle. One woman in the, in, the, in the place, and that was Jane Foley or Henny Tikuri Kaurau, and she fought in a small part. Um, she was a 26-year-old mother of five when she died. She had been um, her mother had been taken as a slave from the Kuri Island in 1823 by Nauru and um, and she had grown up in the far north. But she was fighting here, uh, and she is sometimes thought of as the person who gave water to Colonel Booth. Colonel Booth was the commander of the 40th, uh, 43rd Regiment, and he, um, the story goes that he was able to tell someone before he died the next morning that he had been given water by a Maori woman who spoke English. The other possibility uh, is that it was Hinaro Taratoa, um, and this is a picture of him. He was a, a Christian uh, teacher <coughs> from this area who had been trained up as a, as a teacher, he'd been in Kōpaki. Uh, and he's pictured here after the scene, this is a, a made-up picture of both of them are. And he's sitting there in front of the gate car, painted by Bobby, and holding in his hand the rules of engagement for the battle at Tiwanga. And it's headed up, if I'm enemy hunger feed him, I can first give him a drink. And of course it relates back to the living water. 
And that stained glass window shows, it's from Romans 12, 20, and that stained glass window there shows he to carry caramel giving water to the village trees. And in the Mission Cemetery in Tauranga in town there, uh, we see Rari Puliraki calling Taratawa to bring water to Kumabu. So this is part of the legend around the battle. We don't know how much truth there is in that. The other one is um, the Last Supper. Um, Archdeacon Brown had a meal for the, the officers who were going to go into battle the next morning. Uh, and there were nine or ten, we don't know exactly how many, who had dinner with him before the battle. And um, they uh, sang, Abide with me, and then he gave them communion. And um, uh, of those nine men who, went, uh, who had, or nine or ten men who had um, communion with Archdeacon Brown that night, all of them were killed the next day except for Surgeon Manley, who won the Victoria Cross. So it's an interesting little story. It indicates the situation the missionaries found themselves in, where um, <coughs> Brown is really caught between being an Englishman, being um, loyal to Queen Victoria, towing the government line, um, wanting to pray for his, his countrymen, save their souls, but also he had been a missionary to the Maori for over 20 years, and this is often seen as a bit of a betrayal uh, by him. Um, but this was the sort of quandary that the missionaries were in when I talked about it last week. These are the two men who uh, received the Victoria Cross. It had only come in after the Crimean War the previous uh, decade, but William Manley and Samuel Mitchell both received the Victoria Cross for having rescued people on the battlefield and carried them to safety. You can see that Mitchell's is blue, the Navy had blue ribbons initially, but now they're all the same color. And when he was given his um, Victoria Cross in Sydney, half of the town turned out. It was a huge occasion. Uh, seven weeks later, there was a battle at Tirana, which brought the whole Colombo campaign to an end. I'll just quickly finish on that. <clears throat> the, um, the day after the battle, the British troops came up onto this position. They built a redoubt here and they secured the area. The Maori had won the battle, but they, they had taken so many casualties that they really weren't able to, to, um, to fight another battle. But there were lots of um, warriors in and around the area. People who had come from the Waikato, people who had come down from Thames, looking to continue the war against the British after the Waikato had finished. And so plans were developed to um, continue the strategy of drawing the British out to attack them again in another position. And General Cameron was called away to uh, other locations and he took a large number of his force. So Colonel Greer was left in command again with about 1,500 men, but they were at um, the mission station here in the redoubt, out at Judea, and um, uh, at Makatu, still had soldiers up at Makatu. So his force was spread out. And the plan appears to have been to build another power out at Tiranga and um, to try and draw uh, Greer to attack him there and at the same time to attack several of the British positions. So this is the, uh, the situation at Tiranga. It's just past Aquinas College. Aquinas College is here in this um, field here. 
this is Joyce uh, Piespa Road, and Joyce Road runs off here. And so on the night of the 20th of June, about 500 warriors uh, arrived there late in the afternoon and started to entrench themselves at Tirana. And the, the rifle bits that they constructed were more of a semicircle than the straight line here. But um, Cameron, oh, sorry, um, Greer had some cavalry. So they were out doing reconnaissance because they were suspecting this was going to happen. And they saw these uh, warriors starting to uh, entrench. And so Greer decided that he would attack the next morning, which he did. <coughs> so after morning after breakfast, they set out about 8 o'clock on the 21st of June and um, headed towards the site. And they arrived at about 10.30. You can see the trench was here. You can see the British soldiers in blue through here. And a gun just opposite the entrance to Aquinas College on a low hill just there. And um, Cameron uh, Rhea realised that he had caught the, um, the, the defenders without any defences really. They only dug down a couple of feet, so they were caught in the open. And it's on flat ground. Here, the defenders were high. Here, they are a narrow, flat area, and he has two guns that can fire directly at them, and they don't have much protection. About 300 of them apparently disappeared out of the back, but about 200 decided that they would make a stand. And a lot of these were people from outside of Tauranga. Um, he bombarded, when another couple of hundred reinforcements arrived about 12.30, he launched a very quick attack and um, the, um, the warriors made a very brave stand. Only about 2% of troops will withstand a bayonet attack. Most will turn and run. The British attacked by bayonet and the warriors stood their ground, fired at them. Of course, you haven't got time to reload, but if you've got two barrels, you can fire twice. And then it became hand-to-hand -hand battle. And um, 68 Maori were killed in and around the trenches there, and then they were pursued uh, by the cavalry, by the infantry, and another several, uh, quite a few were killed. Uh, and 30, uh, 13 British soldiers were killed in that area as well. So it was a very quick and brutal battle at Tirana. Um, the casualties were at least 120 Maori. Um, Archdeacon and Brown appeared 108 the next morning in the trenches that they had dug at Tulane, uh, and there were others that died as well. The British lost 13 killed, and two more Victoria Crosses. We don't talk about the Victoria Crosses, um, but we, there were four of one here in Tulane. And the soldiers, of course, are buried in the old um, Otamataha Pass site, which is now the Mission Cemetery site, with dual purpose. Uh, it became, uh, it was consecrated ground, so that was a place where you buried the soldiers. Um, and a couple of years later, Rauri Puhiraki's body was exhumed. He was buried with the soul, with his um, supporters at Tirana, him and Venara And their bodies were exhumed, and um, Puhiraki in particular was reburied in the mission cemetery as a mark of respect. And I think particularly because he was a Christian chief who was buried in a consecrated ground. In my travels around the country, I see this all the time, and it seems to be a mark of respect buried in, in consecrated ground. Uh, 
and this uh, monument was put up to him. And on the 50th anniversary of the battle, it said that a thousand Pākehā attended in the morning. So he was revered, even though he had been in, in that there was a surrender or peacemaking. I don't know um, what you would want to call it, but uh, peace was made. Some rusty old muskets were handed in, um, and under the provisions of the um, the 1863 Native Settlements Act, the government initially confiscated 250,000 acres. So here is the um, the land that we're on.
house and we speech <clears throat> So just talked about the battle and its immediate aftermath. And what I wanted to do was talk about, so what does that battle actually mean for me today in 2021, four generations later? So I'm going to go through all that, and um, at the end, I'm going to ask a question. And if you've been listening, you might win a surprise. <laughs> it used to be a 20 minute test, but it won't work again. Anyway, this is a beginning in the story from my heart, it's the one that captures me. So, Uruwa Hapu and Iwi and Tauranga, the confiscation of lands in 1865 as punishment for rebellion, fell most heavily on my aunt Tamarawa or Hapu, who were Hapu from Junior. <coughs> Governing Road promised that the government would only retain one quarter of the land confiscated. But what he didn't say was that that one quarter would all be in one place. So imagine the shock to our people when that realisation struck home. So while well, almost all the Tauranga Hapu and Iwi who fought at Pukahinehina had participated in the rebellion, most of them had the bulk of their lands returned to them. Big tracts of our land were also allocators as rewards to those in Mali who had taken the British side in the Tauranga fighting, land which they immediately sold, of course. So Matua and Pochimoritai are two places that pulled into that category. <coughs> but the government kept a tight grip on the 50,000 acres that now forms the bulk of Tauranga City. Some of the land was held in trust by the Anglican Church for Mali. But under pressure, the church gave it up and some of that land became reserves, which over time um, become the public parks around our city. So, Robin's Reserve on Cliff Road is a good example of that. Other parts of that land now make up the city's civic centre, the council library, um, the council offices, uh, and Bay Court. Our protests about the unfairness of that situation began almost immediately and continues to this very day. <clears throat> is everybody familiar with this lady? This is the uh, battle flag that part. Um, a couple of years ago, we had the Dawn Anzac service at the Malaya, and we were flying this flag. And I invited one of our local Turkish um, <laughs> citizens to come along and, and read, you know, that amazing um, piece from Ataturk, who says, your sons are now our sons. And so I asked, asked Ali to please come along and could he speak there on the Malaya. You know, when I found Ali standing at the gate, gate, gateway to the Malaya, I said, there's something wrong. I said, what's wrong with that? He said, that's not the Turkish flag. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I'll be a tail flag. Anyway, good mates, and uh, he's always good for one of those wreck around things full of names. So this is the uh, junior redoubt. Um, <clears throat> so traditional lands. We were left with a small reserve at Hurinia or Junior, mostly swamp, and also land at Tungmata, which is on the far side 
from pious power, how far you look through it. So there's a series of protests about the inadequacy of the Lydia Reserve, which led to the granting of a further small reserve along present-day Cambridge Road, part of which we have had to give up for roads. So this is the Junior Road, uh, Junior Road, and Junior Road, and it was built by the regiments in 1864, and placed here to guard um, the former ford that crossed the estuary at this point and linked with the Durham Redoubt on the city side uh, of the estuary. But it was also placed there as a stern reminder of who's the boss now. I don't think it was a calculated insult, but when the troops were withdrawn from Tauranga, the redoubt was garrisoned with Florida's other troops, so we had Māori detail to keep an eye on Māori. <coughs> it's also a reminder of how we find this uh, recurring thing, theme with um, Parsites post battles. So here we are. Cameron Road runs directly through the particles here formally. You can be across the Waikato to Rangariri on the way to Auckland. On the, um, on the highway, you'll see how the road goes right through the middle of that part. And similarly with the Waikato on the outskirts of Tiawutu, where it goes straight through the park. So it's a way of just reminding people who's boss. <coughs> so here in Tauranga, those tiny reserves are not enough for the Huffman families to live on. Neither alone support themselves, so every inch of the Rudia reserve that could be was cultivated, right down to the timeline where high tides and storm surge could ruin the gardens. But gardening and what they could gather from the harbour and seashore will not sustain them. Many families were forced to occupy any vacant land around the city. They became squatters. From the early 1920s through into the 1950s, they could be found living in the middle of Tauranga City. So along Spring Street, along Elizabeth Street, um, Grace Street, Boy Street, um, in and around Cliff Road, the Domain, Memorial Park, and right through to Reardon, including, of course, Cat Park. Our families lived in tents and makeshift sheets, sometimes in hedges, on lands which they also cultivated. And Oakmoto land was given to them to use by generous families like the Mathesons, who allowed them to live there in return for farm and property work. <coughs> there are some stories from those times. Um, the unique fields of vegetables were often ridden down by Pakeha, riding to the hounds. It's surprising that most of the people were visitors from Auckland. <laughs> <laughs> they could only watch in silent outrage and then set to an attempt to fix the damage. The city spots where they lived were mostly in locations which were remembered from much earlier times as being suited to intensive cultivation and which, as in Spring Street, had a reliable water supply. So this is one of the campsites. And gardening took on great importance because it was the main source of food. While the sale of surplus vegetables earned money to buy those basics that hadn't become part of their lifestyle. Flour, tea, sugar, tobacco. In some cases, the vegetables were only market for goods such as clothes. Fishing and gathering of kaimuan were other activities. The fish was also traded. 
and another way is like you have to be really access to birds and bush birds. So this is um, roadworks along Willow Street. <coughs> so the legacy of those days remains with many of our families today. And um, <coughs> the ubiquitous boiler, for example, in some families remains a mainstay meal. It dates back to these desperate times. Cheap cuts of fatty meat like brisket and mutton flanks, any green vegetable, including kuha or watercress, potatoes and kuma dumplings made from flour and water, all together in one pot, and providing the whole family with their main meal for the day. Fish treated the same way, the bullets might get sold or traded, but the frames and heads are kept and served up with boiled potatoes and bones being picked clean. For a treat, there might be an animal made of hot sweet black tea and bread made from roughly leaf flour and water baked in camp ovens from the ashes of the fire. A dripping of lard was a substitute for butter. The same dripping of muscle power showing with a rag wick made the smoky candles that lit were hovels in which the people lived. Um, you might have seen this calabash down the corner of Spring Street and Grass Street. So it's a reminder of the spring that used to run in Spring Street and which was used to get back to all the gardens that were along Gray Street. <coughs> um, so some work was available, uh, but it was a week here and we to see physical. Farm work and labouring became the mainstay of the Makamaraa economy providing employment, but more importantly food. The hut would provide the labourers who worked on the town roads and laboured on the railway bridge and the railway line. They were the ones who were given the work of carting the soil and digging largely by hand, the railway cutting through the old pathway of Wilton Farm, you know, we trimmed the wolf hotels and the cut that goes through there, so the bridge across it, linking part of the road with the Wilton Farm Cemetery at cutting there. This then allowed the railway line along the harbour front to be constructed using the building. The impoverished um, hardships formed by the land confiscation was a constant reminder to our people of the unfairness of their treatment and they determined not to accept the injustice of this situation. Many who were held to discuss the happy circumstances and it was decided that the matter should be taken to Parliament. So between 1873 in 1889, we bombarded the with some full petitions seeking redress over the confiscated land. Um, this is politicians with fear game, uh, we could only get to that. And Teowete. Uh, Teowete is, I think, the nearest pole in the line outside um, along the uh, reserve. Um, Teorica was a young woman who, um, after the battle, um, had her horse and she was taking wounded soldiers into the hospital um, in Papa. And um, the last man she picked up, she was a bit afraid to take him in, thinking she might get shot, so she took him home. Well, what a surprise, later on they married. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> immediately the Hall or Matthew farm earlier in Tarana, they are the descendants 
Herod's eldest son, um, who was responsible for the drafting of many of the um, petitions. <coughs> and so when she, your Bethlehem's court, confronted one of these ministers in 1907, and she received what we call the whole answer, that's H-O-L-E, which is the minister we look into. Motel Marawa realised at the start of the 20th century that a real commitment and concerted effort was needed to address matters. And those with jobs were asked to put aside a shilling a week from their wages to fund the petitions that from the 1920s especially were regularly sent with delegations to, to Wellington. All the working men in Mahapu were taxed in this way, a shilling was a great deal of money at that time and an additional hardship on Hapu members. In 1938, those petitions led to a Royal Commission inquiry into the Tauranga lands question, but although the injustice is recognised, there was no change to the Hapu circumstances. The Commission, um, which did bother to investigate the structure of the various tribal and Hapu groups around the harbour, treated them all as one, and in a disgraceful decision, found on that basis, confiscations were justifiable and not excessive. So under two Kamarawa efforts, the seat redress continued up to the outbreak of the Second World War, when many of the Hapunese went overseas to fighters after the 28th Mile Battalion. The protest resumed immediately after the war with the return of the soldiers giving a fresh impetus to the efforts to right this injustice. And there was some local sympathy in Tauranga for Makamaraho when it was made public that Uriya Marae, easily the poorest Marae in Tauranga, had raised over 45,000 pounds, or around 3 million in today's currency, as their contribution to the war effort. <coughs> Suffered from health problems with little or no access to medical 
facilities uh, in lieu of being taken to see my great grandmother's sister, who almost died, was living in a dirt floor house, where she kept as neat as a pin. People just lived lives of grinding poverty, which we just can't imagine. It's not that they were lazy or lacked the work ethic. In terms of productive work, I reckon they would put any modern labour to shame. Even the lives of my parents and their early years together were rooted in an existence that relied hugely on what they could gather from land, sea, and forest. So Mum tells me the story of how they were walking back from town one day along the beach, starving, no money, wondering what are we going to eat today? And suddenly, this kingfisherman rushing past the beach and all these herons jumped out onto the beach. <laughs> Couldn't believe their luck. <laughs>
huge industry to get into. Maori families were inevitably banished, more working hands made the subsistence gathering and the gathering of kite from bush and sea easier. Boys and girls were set to work at an early age. Uh, my father, born in the 1930s, did not get the chance to finish school, being sent out to work as a fencer and scrub cutter at age 12. His brothers and sisters were similarly treated. Like their father before them, in effect, they were trapped in a deprived cage with society kept locked with invisible padlocks of rural conventions and social mores. So this is my dad. <coughs> I always remember as a small boy wondering why when my father spoke to Pākehā people outside of his work or neighbourhood circles. He was so differential. I think now that if he wore a cap, he probably held it in his hands and twisted it. And if the customer was to touch your forelock, he would have done that too. I realised later that he was stuck in a mode of life where society told him that he was inferior, or of less status as a person, and this was his response. He accepted without question the casual racism that we encountered in the 1950s. Um, Māori, for example, not permitted to sit upstairs at the pictures, although a huge influx of Māori and Pacific Islanders working in the timber town of Tokoroa, near to where we, we lived at the time. Um, soon not that nonsense on the head. <laughs> uh, my father, a teetotaler all his life, would never dream of drinking other than the public bar where he enjoyed a lemonade and raspberry with a sawmill mates. The lounge bar was the flash pocket of people. And it makes me grind my teeth still to think how he put up with being dressed as Horvin by snickering young garage attendants who were supposed to help the service in the car, and of course. He help the Māori man and his pickings. I remember my mother insisting that <clears throat> we eat at a restaurant in Hamilton one time in Garden Place. And my father being shocked by the fact that the party waitress actually brought our meals to the table and that we were allowed to have dessert at lunchtime and sit at a white tablecloth table amongst all these flash people. A kind and generous man who would give and the shirt was back to anyone in there. He did not deserve to be treated so. <coughs> and my heart weeps for him when I think of it. Excuse me. <coughs> so the journey of Dad and his siblings typifies the arrested social and economic development of many total in Maori and is a true legacy of not just Pukahini in the Gap Park, but all the rules of the 1860s. And it's taken our father until now to believe that we can escape that legacy. But the battle's not yet done. Two decades after the White Tree Tribunal heard our claims, we were still arguing the settlement detail. Many of us remain trapped in an economic cage because, on a wider scale, inequality continues to flourish. And you can see that reflected in the existence of a large Māori underclass, while every social indicator you can think of is skewed. Largely driven by the revival of Anzac Day remembrances, I believe, however, our attitudes to our task force have changed dramatically. 
When I was a child, all they were characterised as noble and glorious heroes who laid down their lives to preserve our freedom. But I think there is now undergoing a subtle change and is being replaced by a sobering sadness at the waste of millions of lives and a bitter resentment at the blind loyalty to the inept leadership that threw all those young lives away. Passchendaele was a prime example of this shift. In a visit to Rome a couple of years ago, I surprised myself with tears um, when I stumbled across a small board cemetery and the neatly picked graves of some forgotten human soldiers. On a small scale, I think it's the same with Cape Palm. There is no glorious victory to celebrate, but there is a sadness derived from the mature reflection of hindsight and regret that no one until 1864 on either side saw the opportunity to broker a resolution that did not involve fighting. Four generations from beginning, my generation of our family still looks at the future through yesterday's lens, and we will continue to do so. It is a legacy that I have passed to my children, and in turn they will pass the chance to their children. Firstly, to honour the efforts of all those like my grandfather, who clearly kept his family together through hard times while utilising every small opportunity that came his way. The thing is, he never lost sight of where he came from, or who he was, and what his duty to the haku was. He refused to give up the formidable task of seeking justice over the land. <coughs> Secondly, it is for me, my generation, to take on that obligation to ourselves, to never forget and to maintain our dignity and our integrity as his descendants, taking up with pride the challenge of our tainted inheritance. We will not put it down until we believe the injustice is satisfied, that it is now a level playing, playing field, that we have done all we can to restore the hope of the state, that the sense of being unworthy of being something less is no longer there. <clears throat> It is a burden. If you ask me how we are doing, I'd say, well, over 150 years since that meet afternoon in April 1864, we Māori and Pākehā travelled a long way. And yet, despite it being slight, the horses preaching meeting on Friday, we're making good progress. It's my view that we're no longer two people's white part but two people with the things we hold in common, outnumbering the differences between us. I think in my lifetime I've seen us become a more mature people, grasping hard in a different nationhood and endeavouring to build a society where equality and tolerance are aspirations firmly within the reach of all of us. So you might ask, so how do we do that, buddy? Fine words, but yeah. <coughs> um, in my later years with the Waitangi Tribunal as director, I was privileged to um, be on the, the um, Cookstrike Theory one night. I don't know why. Anyway, there was this huge crowd gathered in the lounge of the, of the theory. And I went in there, and here's um, Billy Cooper in her wheelchair holding forth. <laughs> and everybody in the room. 
just hanging on every bridge you see. Anyway, um, I did some small service for work in Chibogan, if you go and visit here in Panaloo, up north sometime. <coughs> and over the years we formed a, a, you know, a lovely relationship with that magnificent queer. Anyway, I said to her, so what's the answer? She said, oh, that's yours. Well, let me tell you, what you have to do, we have to marry them. <laughs>
One of the things I'm struck as, as I listen to people like Buddy tell the story and people like Cliff tell the story, uh, and as I reflect on that for myself, is like I know a lot about the story, and in a, a tiny little sense it is my story, because I think my great-great-great-grandfather was down there, but in a way it's not my story, it didn't, it didn't impact my life. Um, my grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather went on, he married... Um, some crazy into a crazy Presbyterian group up in Waipu, and um, <laughs> they were crazy. And, um, Not quite St. Peter's family. <laughs> and you know, my, my life has been pretty good. So, uh, but as I listen to buddies, and as I listen to other Kamaka talk about that story, the effect of this battle for them has shape their lives in a way that I find really hard to imagine. And that's why we need to keep telling the story, because this has changed the story of a, of a whole lot of families' lives for the last 150 years, and it continues to, to affect how we live our life here as a city. So thank you all for coming. I'm very grateful that you came, and the more we can get this out there and tell the story, uh, I think we have a chance of of changing how we relate to each other and the kind of future we can build together in Toro Moana. So thank you all, thank you both uh, for coming and speaking. And I have a little um, gift. And I'll let you guys fight over which one you want. So, um, Buddy turned 70. Have you turned 70 or just had a party? No, we had both. Right. He's had the party. It started on Friday night, so that's when I went, and it went through to Sunday. So. <laughs> he knows how to party well, buddy. Uh, they built a house up in um, Manaya that actually uh, you can party while there, and he's building a, uh, putting in a native tree grove. So this is this is the first one we would like to give you, and we'll talk to you about what else we can give you as a kōpā for all the work you do. So thank you, buddy. And uh, this one is for Cliff to say thank you as well. He is a parishioner, but uh, I, he also wants to put in a native tree grove at his place. So he's not quite as advanced in the thinking yet as Buddy is. But uh, there's the first tree, so now you can So next week we don't have a lecture, um, but there is lots of good Waikani Day commemoration stuff happening. Uh, you'll be surprised to know that Buddy involved in some of that. So there is a dawn service over at Mount Jury, Hopikori, uh, over near Mawal, uh, so that's at 6.30, and James Muir's been uh, involved in organising that, and then down at the um, historic village, uh, there's some great celebrations going on from 10 o'clock, is it? Yeah. So we went last year, it was a lot of fun, and you're doing the citizenship Again, you know? No, because of the lockdown, we didn't have any new citizens. Oh, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would have. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so please do take part in that. But on the 14th, uh, so we'll be back here, and uh, the Reverend Dr. Hilary Carr will be speaking. So some of you who are older will remember Honey Carr on television, a uh, bit of a stroppy guy. So Hilary uh, is his son, so equally stroppy. Uh, an Anglican priest, but also an academic, a uh, historian working at Auckland University. And he is going to come and speak about, so he's going to merge 
the topic that I gave him, which was the Treaty of Waitangi, with his own research, which is looking at the Anglican story, the, the first Anglican story, through Māori eyes. So he's been accessing all the letters uh, and other documents that are written by Māori that are stored down in the uh, Alexander Turnbull Library that were written in Te Māori. So people like us don't have access to that because well, Te Rau Māori is not that good. For him, it was a treasure trove. So he's going to pull those two things together and speak about Tutiriti or Waitangi, the Anglican Treaty, because as Cliff talked about last night, Anglicans were very involved in that and kind of weave the story of the Anglican Church all together. So I'm really looking forward to having Hirani here. Uh, Hirani and I have known each other for a long time and worked together for a number of years. So please come back and uh, listen to Hirani. But Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, if you've got a car across the road, you probably need to get it. And apart from that, please thank Buddy and Cliff. Thank you.